Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have been for a number of weeks talking about, actually looking at the question, why Pentecost? Why are we a Pentecostal church? Why are we a full gospel charismatic church? Why are we this? What is so important? What is the big deal? Well, obviously, we think it's a big deal or we wouldn't have been all these weeks on it and still be continuing it. And one of the reasons that it's so important to us is because it's the original plan of God. I don't know exactly how and all the details of how the church got so far off track in so many ways from the original design and purpose that we see in the book of Acts. But I am thankful that somehow God got over to me and to many others as well that the book of Acts is not just history, but the book of Acts is a pattern. It is how God wanted things done, and it's how God still does things today when he can find people to cooperate with him. I'm not Pentecostal because I'm just trying to be different. I'm not Pentecostal just to be controversial, but I'm Pentecostal because it's biblical. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Let me stop a moment and say that if there was any of the early church leaders who could have done this, it would have been Paul. He was perhaps the most intellectual and most well-educated of all those early church leaders. But he says, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. You see, those are things the world puts a lot of stock in. How many initials are after your name? What school you went to? Uh, circles you run in? The books you have read? And sometimes even more prestigious, the books you've written or whatever it is. The world puts a lot of stock in that. But here this great apostle who wrote basically two-thirds of the New Testament epistles who was used probably more than any other person other than Jesus Christ himself to influence the world in the last 2,000 years for God, for good, for Christianity. He said, I didn't bother with that. He says in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's pretty simple, isn't it? You know, we have a tendency to complicate things. We have a tendency to want to tell the story and tell all the gory details. We have a tendency to want to impress on other people how serious this is or how burdensome it is or whatever and and a lot of that is just human desire for not only for recognition but for sympathy pity whatever it may be or to prove that we are so spiritual or we're stronger than somebody else or anything like that but all that's just a bunch of junk it doesn't count for anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified counts for everything he says I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. That's, that's really hard to fathom. 
when you read the writings of Paul and you read about him in the book of Acts, it's hard to fathom that he would have ever been in a place that he would have considered weak or that he would be trembling, that he would be there. But you see, what you understand is the reason, one of the reasons he was is because he had to lay aside all of that education and all the jargon and all the ways of doing things that he had known since his youth. When he came up and was memorizing scriptures as a young Jewish man, when later on he would become a member of the Sanhedrin, when he would do all these things, he had to lay that all aside. So here he is standing in front of a world to proclaim Jesus the Christ as a living Lord and Christianity as the way to heaven. And he basically has to do it without depending on all that training. Now the scriptures that were put into him, that's good. But all of that training that he might have had and all the oratory that he may have learned and tried to use, he says, I didn't use that. So I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. And my, and much trembling, by the way, Verse 4, he says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but, and here's the thing we want to really focus on here, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. If you look up the word power there, it is the word dunamis, D-U-N-A-M-I-S. That word is the same word translated power in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said, You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Paul is kind of going around the block to get back to this point to tell the Corinthians that I didn't come to you in my own strength, my own wits, my own intelligence. I didn't come to you based on my education or my prior connections. I came to you in the power of God, Pentecostal power. Well, I want to say today, if it was good enough for Paul... It sure is good enough for me. And he says why he did this. And I'll reread verse 4 and read now on to verse 5. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration <coughs> excuse me, of the Spirit and the power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith in the power of God. Of God. And so we have in this series of teachings been looking at how to tap into the power. That's what really Pentecost is all about. It's about the coming of the Holy Spirit to be all the things Jesus said He would be. As a matter of fact, to be everything Jesus was to those disciples, the Holy Spirit is to us today. He is the other comforter, one like Him, but another comforter. And, and, and that's why He came to do all of that wonderful work, and to give us this power. And so we walk through the book of Acts looking at the different times in Scripture that we see where people were filled with the Spirit. We looked at the common denominators of what made that uh, the experience that it was, what kept happening again and again and again. And that's why we believe that when people are baptized in the Holy Spirit that the initial evidence, not the only evidence, of course, but the initial evidence is the speaking with other tongues. And I've found over many years of ministry that it is the speaking with tongues that most people have the biggest problem with. You can talk to people about the need to be filled with the Spirit, and anybody that's a Bible reader and a Bible believer, well, they won't argue that point because that is scriptural terminology. The real problem people have is what happens when you are biblically 
filled with the Spirit. And this whole aspect of speaking in tongues becomes such an issue. And so that's why we took so much time with it. And I would encourage you, if you didn't hear those lessons, go back and get them. They're free online, and you can hear them again. And I actually have a book out there called uh, Tongues, Speaking from the Spiritual Dimension, that the Lord led me to write that, that goes into some detail about the purpose and the use of speaking in tongues. And so we walked through the book of Acts looking at that, and now we're walking through the book of Acts looking at church services that are spirit-filled. What does it look like? Are they quiet? Are they rather dead? Are they uneventful times? Are they purely intellectual uh, in their content? Do they just give us information? Or is there more? Well, of course, we believe there's more. We believe there is more. Somebody might ask the question, do you have to act like y'all do? Well... I really don't know that you have to, but why wouldn't you want to? It's so much fun to rejoice. It's so much fun to be blessed. It's so much fun just to throw caution to the wind. And if there's any place in the world that we ought to be able to be our spiritual self, it ought to be at church. Amen. You know, you go to work and they require certain things of you. You might have to dress a certain way, wear a uniform. You have to be there a certain time, stay so long. You have to do this, that, and the other thing. There are rules of conduct that you have to observe and do's and don'ts and all that. And that's necessary, I guess, for everything to work out. But uh, when you come to church, you can leave all that out there and just enjoy the presence of God. Hallelujah. And so we've been looking at that, and we started in Acts 2. That's the logical place to start, looking at the gathering of believers. There were about 120 people gathered in the upper room, waiting on the promise of the Father. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't know what it was going to sound like. They didn't know how they were going to act. They didn't know what to expect other than that Jesus had told them that they needed to go to this place, and they needed to wait for what he called the promise of the Father. The, the coming Holy Spirit would come. And, of course, when that happened, they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And of course, we covered that uh, two Sundays, actually, we talked some about it, so we're not going to take much time with it today. But key words in the Acts 2 experience was obedience. They were there out of obedience to God. Remember, he was seen of over 500 brethren at once, according to Paul, as he wrote to the Corinthians. And so there were only 120 in the upper room. I've asked the question, where were the 380? Well, maybe they were where some folks are today instead of being here. They had other things, you know, more important, they thought, or whatever they needed to do. And I'm not saying you can't ever miss church. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying it's important to do what Jesus said and to be where he told you to be. Obedience, number one. Number two, prayer. They were, they were continuing in prayer for those days leading up to Pentecost. And they were with one accord. That means they were in one place with one agenda. They weren't all trying to do their own thing. They were there with one agenda, and that was the agenda of Jesus. And, of course, he met them in a powerful way. And then uh, last time, we jumped over to Acts 8. And when I jumped over to Acts 8, and I believe the Lord led me to do it, I missed one that I want to give you today, and that's in Acts chapter 4. So would you turn over to Acts chapter 4, please? And, of course, let me give you a little background before we get to verse 23 because that's the verse I want you to land on, Acts 4, 23. 
And so in Acts 3 is the account of Peter and John going up to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. Now, they were still going up at the usual time that Jews would go up to the temple to pray. Uh, and so they went up there. And, uh, they, you know, back in those days, they didn't have debit cards. And they didn't have uh, paper currency. And so uh, they didn't take a bag of silver coins or a bag of gold coins or anything like that. They just went up to pray. And so they went up there to pray, and there was a lame man who had, you know, he was laid there daily to beg alms. And so um, somebody said he, he was asking for alms, and he got legs. But anyway, <laughs> he was asking for alms. He was asking for gifts to the poor. And Peter and John told him, you know, Peter said, look on us. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And immediately, the Bible says, his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, he leaped up and began, he rose up and he began going with Peter and John into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, this stirred up a big stir. That'd be like somebody that came in here today that maybe had never walked in all their life or maybe had not walked in many years totally unable to do so, and before they left, they were walking and leaping and praising God. That'd get some attention, wouldn't it? Well, it did, and, and uh, some of it was good attention, and some of it was not exactly what they wanted, I guess, because the elders and leaders of the Jewish peoples, they didn't like that. So they called them in, they arrested them, brought them in, and they gave them all these threats, and they talked trash to him, you know, and they, they were trying their best to stop this thing. They thought they'd killed Jesus and it was over, but now it's just, it's getting out of hand, thankfully. And, but they didn't feel that way about it. They, they were terribly upset. And so that, you know, they, um, they were, they were threatening them and telling them, you know, not to do this. And so Peter answered, I actually go back to verse 19 of chapter four. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So the leaders here, it says, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. It's hard to argue with a miracle. A man with an argument is, is always going to be at a disadvantage to a man with a real experience. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now look at verse 23. This is going to give us another picture of the early church meeting, one of their meetings, what church was like in this time. And remember, these are patterns for us. So we're not just reading history, but we want, to, we want to follow these kinds of patterns. And being let go, they went to their own companions. Or the old King James, I like the word better, actually, says company. Went to their own company. You know, I like the company I keep. I like your company. And reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Let me say another thing about company. You need a company. You need a connection. You need a people connection in the kingdom of God. You don't need to be out there on your own trying to make all the decisions and, and do all the things without the input of the company, the church service. It's amazing how one word from God can change your life forever. 
one thing said, and it may not be in the sermon. It might be in a song. It may be in an exhortation somewhere in the meeting. It might be during the offering that you receive direction, guidance, help, inspiration from the Lord that will change your life for the rest of your life that you would never have gotten had you not been there. So it's important to, uh, to, to get to your company. Verse 24, so when they heard... When they heard that, that's when the church heard that, they raised their voice to God. So a Pentecostal church has some noise. So if you've wondered about all this raising your voice and all this noise, here you go. You're biblical. They raised their voice to God with one accord and said. Now, we're going to read the prayer they prayed. That's what we're going to read. It's very brief, but we'll read it. And what I want you to understand is that, that this prayer we read is what God heard. I don't know if all of them were praying in their known language, if some of them were praying in the Spirit. We don't know for sure. But basically, when all of this was put together and what God heard from this congregation was what we're getting ready to read. Because what we see in the early church is that they lifted up their voices together. So this is not Deacon Jones praying. This is not Dr. Sleepwell giving us a benediction. This is the church praying. And so if you haven't already, I want you to get this picture. Church is you staying awake and doing stuff. <laughs> Look at your neighbor and say, I know he's preaching to you now. Amen. <laughs> Church is you and me staying awake and doing stuff. <laughs> it's even lifting our voices together. Somebody said, well, you know, God's not hard of hearing. Well, he's not nervous either. He has the great ability to hear all of us at, at one time and yet individually know everything we say. You say, how does he do that? I don't know. That's one of those questions maybe heaven will give us an answer to. It is quite amazing. But he can do it. So they were praying in this issue, and they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice they started their prayer not with their problem. They didn't start their prayer with their problem. That's a great thing to know. That's one of the most important things you can learn about prayer is you don't talk to God uh, about your mountain. You talk to the mountain about your God. Hallelujah. You don't go to God begging and squalling and crying and self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself and talking to him about the problem, the mountain. No, you go to that mountain and you look that mountain square in the eye and you say, in the name of Jesus, I know what God has said. He's already talked to me about you and he says that you will be gone and cast into the sea in the name of Jesus and it'll be as I say it because Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith and I'm saying some things I'm saying some things I'm saying to you mountain move and be gone it may be a mountain of sickness it might be a mountain of lack it might be a mountain of any number of things but it cannot stay cast into the sea and that means it's totally swallowed up and nobody can see there's any evidence of it even being there it's gone so they began by praising the Lord, worshiping God. Lord, you are God. 
And when you think about the context, they were in essence saying, you're God, not the Sanhedrin. You're God, not these so-called religious leaders. You're God, not man. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant have said. Now they're going to quote scripture. You know, you can't quote scripture you don't know. So they use scriptures in their prayers. So we need to use some scripture in our prayers. And if we haven't got it memorized yet, pray with your Bible open and read it. Write them down on a piece of paper. But always bring God His Word in prayer. You say, why? Because Isaiah 55 says, "My word, So shall my word be. God speaks through the prophet. So shall my word be. It shall not return unto me void. In other words, like the heavens receive rain and they receive snow. That's what the previous verses talk about. Just like that, God says, My word will not return unto me void. That means He's sending His word to us like... The rains drop, uh, the clouds rather drop the rain upon the earth. And we know the cycle, how then it's brought up through evaporation, it's brought back up, and it just keeps recycling over and over and over again. And so it is, the Word of God is sent to us, and He says it won't return void. The returning of the Word is your job. That's my job, returning the Word. He has sent His Word, but it's my job to return it. And Isaiah 55, he says, I've got to turn in and read that. You know, we get these messages we're going to preach, and we have our notes, and all that's good, and you should do that. Preachers that are not prepared are just lazy, generally speaking. So we don't want to be lazy. But we also want to be flexible and remember that we're delivering God's message, not ours. So he says, verse 10, I'll just start reading there. Didn't intend to go here, but here we are. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It, that's my word, God says, shall not return to me. The word will not return to God void or empty or without fruit and he goes on to say but it my word shall accomplish what I please and it my word shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it how does that happen if it's returned all of that accomplishing what he pleases, prospering in the thing for where to he sent it, does not happen unless somebody returns the word to him. And that's my job. That's your job. That's our job, returning the word. So that's what they were doing here in Acts 4. They said, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, back to verse 25, Luke uh, Acts 4, why did the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. You see, they're bringing this word because they're seeing that's what's going on right now in our lives. And I, I need to say this. There are times when you're going to find scriptures that you would almost think, God put this here just for me, just for now. And I can tell you what the devil will do. He'll try to tell you that's coincidental that you saw that. That's not for you. 
that was just for the people in that day, that time, or whatever. But one of the things you'll find if you read your New Testament thoroughly is that again and again, even Jesus himself, as well as in you walking on through the book of Acts days, people would go back and pull Old Testament scriptures and would see the quickening for that moment. You see, the Word of God is alive. John 6, 63, it's spirit and life. It's not a dead letter. And so, so when, when, you, when you're standing in your faith and you're using your faith and you come to the scriptures that, that just, just are tailor-made for you, and it just, you know, it's like God is speaking to me. And then the devil, of course, jumps right up here on your shoulder and says, that's not for you. You know, that's really a stretch. That's not really for you. God's not talking. That, that was for somebody else. Now, you've got to tell him, get off. In Jesus' name, this is God's word. And he sent it to me. And I'm going to return it back to him. I'm going to believe it. In other words... And I don't mean this out of arrogance. I mean this with all the respect I can muster. But I'm saying to God, if you didn't want me to believe it and you didn't want me to say it, then why did you send it to me? Because I'm going to say it. And I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to act on it. Because it's God's word to me. Hallelujah. So they quote, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand again, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now they brought him worship, they brought him scripture. They brought him a very brief synopsis of how they relayed those scriptures with what had just happened recently in their lives, what they had seen and experienced. And then they bring their request. Then they bring their petition. Verse 29 says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, you know, it's all right to pray for boldness. Maybe we all should do that and do it more. That with all boldness, they may speak your word. You see, it takes boldness to really speak the word of God. It takes no boldness to be silent and lose by default. But it takes boldness to stand on the word. And notice he goes, they go on. They're not through. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. That's interesting. They're praying now for the healing ministry to be extended. They're praying for the supernatural. Isn't it amazing that here the early church did not just pray, Lord, save all those people. You know they wanted them saved. And you know it was God's will to save them. But in this particular prayer, that's not what they prayed. You see, a lot of people today, they think, well, you know, that's all there is. If we can just get people saved, if we can just get them born again and get them ready for heaven, that, that, you know, that's basically all there is. Well, that's the main thing. That's the greatest need. But if you live even a few hours after you get saved, you're going to need the presence of God. You're going to need the supernatural. You're going to need to know how to walk in the power of God. And so he says, by stre they said, so by stretching out your hand to heal 
and that signs and wonders. Man, they're getting bold. Not just somebody had a headache and they left away without it, but even signs and wonders. Well, they had just seen that in Acts 3 recorded when the lame man walked. They had seen signs and wonders. Many of these people praying would have seen signs and wonders in the ministry of Jesus. For the last three and a half years, they had been seeing this. And so they're saying, Lord, keep on doing it. You see why we're, why we're a Pentecostal church? Because it's the will of God that he keeps on doing it. He keeps on answering prayers. He keeps on healing the sick. He keeps on delivering the oppressed. He keeps on performing signs and wonders. He says that they may be done, they said that they may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now we know this prayer was answered. Because it goes on to say, And when they had prayed... The place where they were assembled together, <coughs> excuse me, was shaken. A lot of people get upset when believers shake a little bit, when we dance a little bit, when we get a little animated. I wonder what they would think about this day when they were in this meeting, even if they were just a bystander listening to all this praying. And they were loud, and they were really getting with it. They were very fervent, and they were making some bold claims, and they were asking for some big stuff, and then all of a sudden, the whole place starts shaking. <laughs> Hallelujah. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Thought they already were. Well, they were on the day of Pentecost, but we have, we have one initial infilling, but we have many fillings along the way. We, are, we stay full, we get full, we are refilled. Why? Because we leak. Same reason you're going to put gas in your car again. Because you use it. And you'll need it. Well, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spoke the Word of God with what? Boldness. Just like they asked for. Boldness. And so what we're seeing here is that the prayers of the early church was about the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That's what it was about in those 10 days prior to the day of Pentecost. Even though they didn't know exactly all they were praying for, they just knew God had made a promise that Jesus said there was the promise of the Father that was going to come. And they began to pray about that, and power came. The Holy Ghost came. And now in Acts chapter 4, they are here praying, and they're still praying about the power. They're still praying about the anointing. They're still praying about signs and wonders. They are still, in other words, believing God for miracles. They're still believing for answered prayer. So my brother and sister, what we see is a pattern of a spirit-filled church is a church that is reaching out to God, that is open to God, that is cooperating with God for His power to manifest and for lives to be changed. Because there are so many, many things that will not change without the power of God. You'll not be able to get it just by counseling. And counseling has its place and it can do some good. You'll not get it just through medical science. Medical science has its place, has its place and it certainly can do some good. You'll not get it just because uh, of somebody giving you some inspirational talk or some motivational talk, though those things are good and they have their place. But there is a time and a place and it'll come to every life. If you haven't been there yet, just keep on living. You'll get there. But there'll come a time in every life when you will need the power of God. 
You'll need the anointing. You'll need the Holy Ghost. You'll need signs and wonders. You're going to need to see the power of God manifested. If it's not for you personally, it'll probably be for somebody you love, somebody you know, somebody you care for. And I am so glad to report to you today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and upon the authority of the gospel of Christ, the word of God, that power is available. That power is ready. That power, that name has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank God he's still a miracle working, prayer answering God. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, what happens in that kind of atmosphere? What happens when this kind of praying goes on? When people are open to this move of the Spirit, when they're open to the gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit, when they, like Paul, are willing to put on the shelf the things that make them look good and cool in the sight of man, and they're willing to, if necessary, be considered a fool for Christ's sake, to, to if necessary, lay aside all the things that they think build a reputation and make themselves of no reputation in order to follow Jesus and to do His will. What happens? Just what we're reading about. Signs, wonders, and miracles. No wonder the great flow of Pentecost in the 20th century was in many quarters and in many places in those days among those who were less affluent financially and, any, and many times even among the less educated intellectually. And it wasn't because God puts a premium on poverty or because God puts a premium on ignorance. But the thing was, people just said, I'll receive it. And you know, that's the smartest answer in the world. That's the wisest answer in the world. It's just to receive what the Lord gives. Just receive what He gives. And you'll notice that all of this is tied up with and wrapped up with the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And last week, we finished up, as I said, I kind of just jumped over this passage. And I believe it was the Lord leading me to do that. But I just jumped over Acts 4 and got to Acts 8 where Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. He preached the anointed one unto them and his anointing. He preached to them and he brought to them the gospel. And of course, people were saved, people were healed, people that were demonized were set free and delivered. People were baptized in water. There was, there was miracles done. It was, it was a true revival in Samaria. You see it in Acts chapter 8. And of course, we talked about that word Christ, that transliteration from the Greek word Christos over to English as just Christ, how that it was basically brought over, and the word means the anointed one, the anointed one. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah, and how that, that uh, the anointed one is of, uh, just inherently, has it, it involves his anointing. Because you're not the anointed one unless you have some anointing. Now what I want you to realize today is a scripture found in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 27. 
when we talk about the anointing. You see, we didn't quite get done last week, so we've got a little bit of loose ends to tie up this morning. John here writes to believers, that's to all of us, and he says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. So does it come and go? No, it abides. That means it stays. And you do not need that anyone teach you. Now, he wasn't saying that we don't need teachers, but he was saying that there is a way that the Holy Spirit will teach you himself inside of you as the same anointing, he goes on to say, teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Now, I wanted to read that verse because I want you to see that every believer has a degree of the anointing, the presence of God in their life. But I also want you to understand that when you compare a verse like that with a passage in Acts chapter 8, that there are measures of the anointing that are equal to various degrees of manifestation. In other words, the more anointing manifested, the greater manifestations there will be. So when you're at home with your open Bible and you're seeking God and you're praying, you're doing sometimes what we call devotions, there is a, there is a moving and a level of the anointing that's there upon your life to keep you, to bless you, to teach you, uh, to do all the good things that the Lord wants to do in your life personally. But let's say that you are in a meeting and you're the minister and you're getting ready to lay hands on sick people or you're getting ready to minister deliverance to someone or, or let's say it's you and you're not in your, uh, your uh, rocking chair doing your devotions, drinking coffee and reading your Bible. But let's say you're down at a hospital room where someone is really being tormented by the devil. How many of you would agree it's going to take more anointing to get that person free than it was just for you to enjoy some fellowship in your rocking chair that morning? In other words, the power of God is measurable. Just as faith is measurable. The Bible speaks of strong faith, weak faith, no faith, little faith. Well, the anointing is, in essence, the same way is that you can be more or less anointed. If you've ever been in a service where it was all you could do to stay awake, that would be what we would call less anointing. <laughs> but if you've ever been in a service where it was almost all you could do to get up and keep from running, which you shouldn't have kept from running, but, you know, that was more anointing. And there is an anointing that comes upon us individually, and then there is an anointing that comes into a place corporately, the presence of God, the glory of God. And we read about that. We've, we've already in this series, we've talked about it and how, for instance, the glory of God came when Solomon dedicated the temple and the priests couldn't even stand to minister and the cloud of God's glory came down. I mean, to the, to the people there, it looked like a, a cloud or a fog, but it was the glory of God. It's amazing. And so what the early church learned there in, uh, in, in those early days and the way they were praying in Acts 4 lets us know that they understood that this can be increased and that we need it increased 
in order to have the greater manifestations of God. And so what we see in Philip's life in Acts 8 is that he went down under a great anointing. And that anointing flowed and people were healed, delivered, and set free. He was carrying on the ministry of Jesus. Now, if you will, go back to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And look at verse number 38. Now, this is, a, this is uh, Peter's message at the household of Cornelius. In chapter 10, and that's another passage we need to take a look at, but today we won't be looking at any detail here much. But in Acts 10, 38, the one verse we will look at, Peter in preaching says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Do you see that in your Bible? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so we see that the great healing ministry of Jesus was accomplished through the anointing. That's why it's important that we understand Christ, Christos, the anointed one, and we understand that the anointing is what does the job. It's the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 10, 27 says, The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now, I don't know what you grew up in. I don't know what kind of church you came out of. But the church I grew up in, we didn't talk much about the anointing. We heard very little about it. And we experienced very little of it. We weren't sure if God wanted to heal everybody. As a matter of fact, I think probably we were more sure that he probably didn't. And so when somebody got sick, we just hoped he was, they were one of the lucky ones. Everything was kind of hit and miss. Not everybody was even sure they was going to stay saved till the end of this thing. And they would ask people, pray for me that I'll hold out true and faithful to the end. I mean, this was the, the mindset and the attitude. So you've got to understand, I come into these settings and I come into this atmosphere. I come into these revelations of the Word of God and I've got a lot of work to do to renew my mind. It's hard to say amen. God said it first. It's true. I'm still working on it. Praise the Lord. I'm still working on it. But the thing I want you to understand is it's the anointing that we need. And it's the, and it's the anointing that does the work. Amen. Hallelujah. So notice Acts 10, 38 again. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Why was God, the Son, manifest in the flesh needing to be anointed? Because He laid aside His mighty power and glory. He stripped himself willingly, voluntarily, sovereignly. He determined, I'll go to the earth as a man and I'll minister as a man under the old covenant in his day, as we pointed out last week. And I will do it with the anointing of the Holy Ghost and I will show the will of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God, even under the Old Testament. So how much more should you and I, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, walk in the anointing with which Jesus was anointed with, because it's the same Spirit. Romans 8, 11 says, But if the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, he that raised Christ from the dead will also quicken or make alive your mortal body by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Folks, we don't have a separate or different Holy Ghost. We have the same one that Jesus was anointed with. We don't have a different Holy Spirit that, than that which fell on the day of Pentecost. This is the same Holy Spirit. And this is not a different church. 
It's the same church. No, we're not located in Jerusalem, but it's the same body of Christ. So the same word, the same testament, the same command, the same commission is ours today. All that he ever was is all that he ever is. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so it's that anointing, that manifestation of power, that he stretches forth his hand to heal. That's what they prayed in Acts 4. And, and when you look at the hand of God all through Scripture, that is synonymous with, and that's a picture of the power of God. And anytime you're talking about the hand of God, the power of God, you're talking about the Spirit of God. And anytime you're talking about the Spirit of God, you're talking about the one who lives inside of you right now. So it's not arrogance, it's not foolishness, and it's not pride for us to say we are anointed of the Holy Ghost. And the same anointing that was upon Jesus is upon us. Now, I know I don't have the, the full measure that all that he had, but I have the same spirit, and I am fully able to do everything he has called me to do, and I am fully able to receive through the anointing everything that the New Testament says belongs to me. Everything, which includes my healing, my peace, my direction, his guidance, and all the rest. So today... We have been asked, and I'm going to close this with this, but, you know, a message like this, you can't put a bow tie ending to. You just can, we're going to unhook here, and next week we will hook back up. So don't miss next week, praise the Lord. But I do want to, um, I want to respond to two requests that we have had this week. And these, this message today uh, neither person probably realized how well this would fit and how, how appropriate it would be, but the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit knows. But it's about the anointing, and it's about the power of God. I was, uh, I was asked that I would um, minister with a piece of cloth and um, lay hands on it and send it. There's a brother that I know and have known for many years in, in the state of Kentucky, and he wants this for his son, young man who's very ill. Doctor saying needs a kidney transplant, and I don't know what else. Just an attack of the devil. And then also, Miss Ashley has asked that we would have a prayer cloth to take right to somebody. You're going to take to somebody. Uh, you say, why would we do that? Well, let's go to Acts chapter 19. This is a part of today's teaching. It's part of today's ministry. So, I want to go there. And thank you guys for being there. You might have to stand there a minute or two, but you'll be all right. You're young. Praise the Lord. Acts 19, verses 11 and 12 says, Now God worked unusual miracles. Now, if we don't read any more, nobody has a problem with that, do they? But he said, by the hands of Paul. Now, let me ask you this question. Does that mean Paul, of his own accord, did whatever he wanted? No. Does that mean that Paul was so special that he could just decide to do this on his own? No. Who worked the miracle? God. He just used Paul's hands. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. Well, it says 
he wrought these miracles by his hands, and then it says brought from his body, so your hands are part of your body. But we also would be inclined to think that perhaps he might have kept them on his person in some way or another and laid hands on them as well, or at least handed them to somebody with his hand. But anyway, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So we see that this is another way that the anointing is manifested, is through, through this method. Now, what happened, obviously, is that Paul was anointed, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit went into those pieces of cloth, and like a battery, we might say, in today's modern terminology, they carried that power with them, and when the sick or the demonized received those pieces of cloth... That power went to work in them and drove out any demon manifestation that would have been there and drove out any manifestation of sickness and disease. So the power of God is transmittable, transferable. John G. Lake said, a great pioneer of healing in the 20th century, he said that electricity is God's power in the natural. The Holy Ghost is God's power in the spiritual. And so if you know anything about how electricity uh, operates, you know that it doesn't operate according to any set of rules. It doesn't operate just any old way. But it, it, if it's harnessed and it's properly used, then it can do great good. And so it is in the natural, so it is in the spiritual. The power of God, properly used, does Great good. Great good. And so uh, I remember this, this uh, brother that I'm talking about who asked for his son for this uh, uh, cloth to be sent to him. This brother was in, um, in the church, part of the church, that I tell the story about the lady who was the, the, the RN, the nurse who got a prayer cloth for her uncle who said he was an atheist. And then he had this growth came upon his uh, back of his neck and, and you know it's amazing how an atheist and an agnostic will change their tune when they're faced with the possibility of death well she took advantage of this ministry and we laid hands on the cloth and prayed and she sent it to him gave him instructions that he should sleep on it and he did now, this is a guy not born again yet. And the next morning, he woke up and that was gone. That growth was gone. That growth was gone. Praise the Lord. So, I believe in the anointing. I believe that Acts 19, 11, and 12 is a pattern, like so many things in the book of Acts, a pattern for the way that God can minister today. I didn't actually ask the Lord, could I do this long ago? I was, I, I was actually brought into it kind of involuntarily uh, when someone asked me to pray. Because I was teaching and preaching healing. I've been doing that for decades. And um, I was asked to pray, and, and I had never done it before. And I remember how awkward I felt because it just seems, it seems so, um, I don't know, just strange to me. But I did. And uh, all these many years, the Lord has uh, used 
us in that way. And so I give him the glory and him the praise. And so today, we're going to lay our hands on these pieces of cloth right now in the name of Jesus. And I believe that when... I believe that the mighty anointing of the Holy Spirit goes with these. And when they are laid upon the bodies of the sick or of those who are tormented in any way by the devil, if it's one or both of those things, I believe that the evil spirit, if they're present, must depart. Those spirits must depart. And that the sickness and disease has to leave their body. I speak life and I speak healing. And I believe the anointing of God flows into them. From the top of their heads to the soles of their feet. And I thank you, Lord, that you will get the glory. You'll get the honor. You'll get the praise. Because you are the healer. It is your work. And you do good work. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So, Matt, if you I'll keep this one and I'll we'll get it mailed out this week. And if you need one of those, just lift up your hand and he'll get it to you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The anointing of the Holy Ghost is here. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's just wait a moment in the presence of God. You sense that peace. You sense His presence. Reach out right now. Take whatever you need. You're anointed. That anointing will heal you. That anointing will bring you peace that passes all understanding. That anointing will bring to you revelation truth. That anointing will bring to you guidance and direction so that you know which step to take next. That anointing abides within you. And the Lord is here today to bless you. There's just a holy presence of God in this place. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Mendolobo savre patakasa. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 